You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Freedom of Species is who you just heard from. If you want to find out more about that program, uh, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Freedom of Species program page. Uh, follow their uh, podcast. You can subscribe to their podcast. You can follow them on social media. Uh, and you can do the same for Encyclopedia while you're there. Check out the website, 3cr.org.au. You can also become a member and find out more about the radio station that you hear these programs on. Uh, perhaps you'd like to get involved with broadcasting yourself one day. 3cr.org.au. Listen closely now. Something that all of you need to understand. Good afternoon. Welcome to uh, Encyclopedia for your Sunday afternoon. Um, The last Sunday of winter, in fact. Um, Next Sunday, it will be the first day of spring. And with spring comes slightly warmer weather and, of course, festival season uh, with the many festivals planned uh, for September, October, outdoor festivals around St Kilda, Katani Gardens, around uh, Docklands area. There'll be events down there and, of course, across regional Victoria. So I guess the ongoing conversation of um, festivals in this state with the context of um, a year of inquiries in New South Wales and increased police action using sniffer dogs, using strip searches at public train stations. Uh, I even saw some some um, uh, pictures of sniffer dogs at Threadbow uh, just last weekend. At Threadbow, at the snow resort at Threadbow, going through the uh, the pubs, and apparently there were also sni- uh, strip search tents set up there in the snow so the police could find a gram of cannabis or whatever on snowboarding people. So, good afternoon. This is in Psychedelia. What we talk about is drugs, and I'd like to introduce uh, two guests uh, well, one guest, one regular person, uh, Ash, who is on the phone. Ash Blackwell, welcome. I don't know if I'd call myself a regular person, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a regular, irregular person, but always on the show. Uh, and um, Jared Bartle, maestro of vice is what I've been calling you, Jared. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> I'm loving it. Thanks for having me. I like my new title. <laughs> so Jared has been uh, writing a lot of articles on uh, not just drug issues, um, but uh, well, a lot of issues around well, sort of vice topics. I guess. Do you want to give a quick plug for your podcast quickly? Because you have been doing a podcast on some of these uh, topics. I do. Oh, that's very, very good. Actually, I have a number of podcasts that I can actually <laughs> promote right now. I am um, doing uh, one podcast for the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative that your listeners might be interested in, um, all about uh, wrongful convictions. So check that out, mm. the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative. And I've also got a separate podcast called Sinister Sissies, which is looking at kind of true crime and, and other aspects from the perspective of kind of LGBT issues. And you've um you've covered some some interesting and uh, well maybe I mean I suppose you're, you're verging into t- taboo type content in your um uh, in the um uh, sorry you just said it and it's just slipped my mind in your one... yes yes the one that's on SoundCloud is that right yes that's right yes yeah some interesting topics uh, t- t- uh, tell us about a few of the uh, the topics that you've been looking into looking deeper into on the SoundCloud one. So we did. We've done an episode on Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, we've done an infamous serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, we've done episodes on various uh, horror films that have a homoerotic subtext, and we've also uh, done a couple of episodes on uh, contemporary Satanism uh, and its approach to homosexuality. So everything weird and wacky is, is what the current podcast is all about. 
And it's uh, soundcloud.com forward slash Sinister Sissies podcast. That's correct. That's correct. And that's with a, a hyphen in between Sinister Sissies and Sissies and podcast. Uh, we'll put a link up to that as well on our Facebook if you want to check that out. Uh, and interesting mentioning um, uh, modern Satanism because I, know, I noticed that uh, modern Satanism has been popping up uh, in the US a lot. Um, uh, playing the religious freedom game, I guess it's a it's a game that we're seeing yeah. played over here a bit. Um, but but in in the US, the religious freedom game, where it seems to be mostly uh, uh, relatively people in the status quo, people w- with a lot of privilege, who are saying, "Oh, but we don't we don't have our freedoms because we don't get to pick who we can hire and not hire." And I don't know, just this sort of it's, sort of uh, the inverse. Re- uh, we could use it for the drug policy space. I think we uh, we need to get uh, a lot more religious protections for people who use psychedelic drugs. Well, funny you should mention that because um, uh, the Australian Psychedelic Society, of which I'm current president of, uh, did make two submissions to the religious freedom inquiries um, that were um, the Ruddock one. There because there were three of them, weren't there? Three, three all up. Religious freedom inquiries. Oh, I haven't been keeping track. <laughs> I think it was three because I was I was keeping track, and that was just at the Commonwealth level over the past few years. Um, but yeah, we made a submission there, um, calling on religious freedom for people who uh, use psychedelic substances. We were speaking about in particular because of it was the Australian Psychedelic Society. Um, but I, I noticed that. Um, I, look, we haven't really been pushing the conversation too much in in public um, because. Uh, it, you know, I mean, it's hard. Do you, do you push that and where does it go? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we have we have put it out there and, um, you know, it, it's, it's there. So anyway, um, on the show this afternoon, we're going to talk about a few uh, different topics, uh, some of the topics that have been happening over the... Um, over the past year in particular. I, I mean, it's a lot of the topics that we've been covering over the past four years, but I um, uh, thought we'd get, get a little bit of um, perspective on some of these things uh, because over the past few weeks, uh, last last few shows, we've, we've been playing a few panels, uh, panel discussions where you've, you've been hearing about some of the, uh, uh, the, the nitty-gritty discussions that are going on, but we're going to give a more broad overview. So where, where do we want to start? Uh, pill testing, cannabis, vaporising, roadside drug <laughs> testing, another another theme or topic. We can talk about the TGA's well, role. I, <laughs> I actually, well, I'd like to come back to the TGA, but I wanted to ask you, Jared, about your most recent article in The Guardian um, talking about... Hang on, my phone's a bit funny here. Talking about um, prisons and how they basically fail to do what society thinks, you know, thinks yeah. that it is the best solution to crime. Do you want to delve into that a little bit? Sure. So, so my latest piece for the Guardian um, is basically titled uh, prison, "We Know the Prison Doesn't Work. What Are the Alternatives?" Um, and it was looking at uh, look decades of research, which has basically said that that people who go into a prison environment end up leaving more dangerous and more likely to reoffend uh, before uh, before they went in. Uh, and it was saying, well, okay, if we know that, that prison is an effective way to um, deal with offenders, what are the alternatives to that? And it goes through all those alternatives from um, community corrections options to diversion options to uh, what I think is most relevant to the drug space, actually looking at whether or not criminalisation is the best approach to dealing with that social issue. Uh, so yeah, that's the recent piece in the Guardian, um, and it's got quite a quite a good positive response, which which was great to hear. Um, I think I maybe been publishing in the Herald Sun too much. I wasn't used to the supportive the supportive. <laughs> 
think, um, I mean, this is an issue that's it's kind of pretty pervasive in, in Victorian politics right now. We just had um, over $1.8 billion spent in the most recent budget. And uh, if you go to the, the PAYAC hearing transcript, so that's public accounts and estimates where politicians essentially get to grill the public service about you know, what's happening. And um, the presentation there shows that, like, it's grown since 2010 to 2019. The amount of prisoners on remand has grown from 18% to 38%. So we've got 38% of the people in our prisons haven't actually been convicted uh, of a crime yet. So they're basically waiting trial. And, um, yeah, like, I think this is, like... Yeah. Yeah, do you want to comment on that? Well, that's just that, 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 that natural uh, flow on from the law and order politics that we've been having, particularly for the last five years, that that tightening of eligibility um, for bail, um, obviously following Burke Street, there was a lot of that that happened. A lot of offences shifted from having presumptions in favour of bail to actually having presumptions in favour of remand. Um, and our facilities are just not designed to, to hold that many people. Remand should be reserved for the worst of the worst. It should not be something that um, we, we stick... I mean, it's, it's default remand for traffic offences, for drug drug offences, um, for obviously higher-level drug offences, for trafficking offences. I find that particularly ridiculous um, when we know that those, those, those that demographic is not, not dangerous to the community. There's no reason for them to be on remand. So one of the figures I was a little bit shocked for, in Victoria, or shocked by, in Victoria, I think we have the fourth most expensive prison system in the world. And um, the, the, the countries that have more expensive prisons are countries like Norway, the Netherlands. Um, the other one might be Sweden, I think. And what, what they find in their prison systems is they have a much lower recidivism rate because all of that money kind of gets spent on the rehabilitation that our prisons don't seem to to provide. It's like it's a combination of targeted rehabilitation, which is what you need, not just you know having these occasional programs in place, but really like intensive re- rehab programs. And um, a lot of those countries also do justice reinvestment, so they'll they'll look at particular areas. Um, where there a lot of these offenders are coming from and say, okay, well, we need to use the money that we've saved from imprisoning people and fund community services and social services, services in these areas at risk. And obviously in the long term, that ends up saving you a hell of a lot of money uh, because you're, you're stopping future crimes from occurring. But uh, I guess the... Uh that the question on the lips of uh, so many Herald Sun reading Victorians is, but how how do we put these? Uh, what what do we do with all these ferals then? In terms of people, yeah. <laughs> they, they're the comments I'm used to. Um, I I think you can have, and this is what I argue uh, in the Guardian article. It, it's community correction is not hands off. Um, there there are strict conditions in place to monitor people in the community and funnel them through services to stop them from, from offending. So I, I think we need to move past this idea that, that prison is the only way to effectively control someone's behaviour. There are plenty of cheaper ways that can uh, stop someone who is potentially dangerous from offending um, that are cheaper and are actually more effective. Mm. So we have... Mm. 
Occasionally, the um, library services of the Victorian Parliament presents uh, research that's of public interest. So they had one on recycling a few months ago. And um, just last week, they had Dr Marilyn uh, McMahon present a research paper called No Bail, More Jail? Breaking the Nexus Between Community Protection and Escalating Pre-Trial Detention. And so that kind of looked at this issue uh, in depth. It's something that, um, you know, it's obviously a significant feature of Victoria right now. We have this, this bursting prison system where people aren't getting bailed, they're on remand. Uh, that, that paper uh, is available. If you go to the Big Parliament website, it's quite easy to find. It's just right there on the splash page. And it's probably worth a read to look into exactly um, these kinds of issues that we're discussing. Well, I mean, one of the things about, uh, I mean, the, the point of, or the, from my understanding anyway, I thought the, the point of uh, the, the justice that we do is to try and uh, create incentives for good behaviour or maybe less incentivising of good behaviour, but a lot of disincentivising bad behaviour. But then surely the question should be, well, but has this actually worked? If we've been doing it for a little while, we should be able to see, well, does it actually create a disincentive or do people keep doing it? And if people keep doing it, maybe it's not a good idea to keep punishing people in this way. And I think this is particularly um, a, a big issue for the... Uh, for, for prohibition and for politicians who support prohibition legislation to be thinking about because for since the early 1970s here in Victoria we've had increase, increased um, punitive penalties. Before that it wasn't quite as clear um, how, the, uh, how, how it all worked in Victoria. We had uh, some regulated access to, to various different substances. The scheduling system wasn't what we know it today. Uh, it was more in the hands of doctors but now um, the idea was that we, we need to create harsh p- criminal penalties uh, for people People who are distributing drugs, the, the use and possession thing didn't sort of uh, uh, get built up until later. It was it was meant to be a small disincentive, like a, a fine or something like that. Well, now people can face uh, jail time for for use and possession. But we've seen this since the early 1970s, 50 years, and it doesn't seem to be creating a disincentive. So what is it? I mean, and and even in the Philippines, where people are literally taken out in the middle of the night and, and shot in the street with a bag over their head for being an alleged drug user, people still take drugs. Like, how does it not get through to people that this is obviously not a good disincentive to, to use the stick constantly? And it's in the name, uh, correction. If it's not correcting the behaviour, it's not effective correction. Um, and I think we need to think a bit more broadly about what correction can look like. Um, and prison is just one way of doing that. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the Defenders of Government Schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial Podcast. Streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you. Raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainways.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You are listening to Psychedelia. This is uh, 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Speaking with uh, Ash Blackwell on the phone and also Jared uh, Bartle, who is a... Um a, uh, uh, well, we've been calling him Maestro of Ice, but he's a consultant for the adult industry, for um, government agencies, criminal firms, uh, not-for-profits, uh, all sorts of organisations looking at, um, at uh, issues around drugs, issues around um, sex and sexuality and those sorts of things. Um, so, uh, Ash... Um, Recently, you were, we were talking. We've been talking a bit about roadside drug testing um, mm-hmm. over, over the last little bit, and you um, pointed out a um, concept um, called uh, now what was it? A deter deterrence, something or other. Yeah. So the the um, the document that was produced by the National Drug Driving Working Group, which is like THC, Victoria Police, and all their kind of parallel organisations around the nation get together to kind of create a strategy on drug driving. And the way that that strategy is framed is a psychological theory called deterrence theory. And it has... Um, it, it's essentially what under underlies our successful um, roadside breath testing for alcohol testing. And uh, there's certain features to that. Jared can probably talk more to it. But um, there's things like that the punishment needs to be uh, adequate, like a severe enough... Uh, punishment, and ideally it needs to occur uh, with as close a proximity to the, the um, you know the crime or the, the incident as possible. And the other thing that the, that document highlights is um, that what actually creates a successful deterrence theory policy is broad community support. So there's over 97 percent support for uh, our roadside breath testing regime for alcohol. And um, it's it's one of the things that um, you know we've been looking at is is that it's essentially impossible for the roadside drug testing regime to work as intended without that community support. And so I guess yeah. you know that's something that you and I've spoken about, Nick, is that um, we don't think that it's actually possible for that to happen under the current regime because it's perceived as unjust by you know so many people. And I, I think just to expand on that, so the, the deterrence theory is um, kind of an extension of what's sometimes known as rational choice theory in criminology, and it, it's applicable to only a limited number of crimes. And the basic idea of it is that um, if people see very clear consequences of their actions, um, that they're not going to do it. So there's going to be a reasoning process uh, in place before someone does something, um, and they're going to see the, the likely consequences of their actions and change their behaviour. Obviously, for lots of different crimes, that's not an effective model. Um, you know, a lot of crimes of passion, people aren't reasoning before they're doing something. Um, but for things like drink driving, we, we know that people do have this reasoning process and actually do change their behaviour if they see that there's a likely consequence to things. To things. I think the, 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 the thing that, that's missed in that paper in applying deterrence theory, at least from my perspective, is that the, the reasoning before someone gets in a car, having taken a substance at some point, isn't to assess, am I right to drive? 
um, have I come down, that the reasoning that someone's going through before they get in the car isn't that. The reasoning is, oh, look, the drug's probably still in my system. Screw it. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's a defeatist attitude to the current policy, and so I don't think it really works as a very well under that rational choice model. Mm, perhaps I can give a quick um, direct uh, example of the sort of reasoning, uh, especially when uh, so I'm, uh, I've had uh, two uh, positive readings uh, years apart, um, one in Queensland and one in, in New South Wales. Um, both times were quite a, a lengthy time after I had taken anything and I thought I would have been uh, fine. I certainly knew I was um, sober and fine to drive and I've reached a point now where I just don't, I don't even know uh like if i'm going to be using cannabis at all i don't even know what period of time because i also know of stories of people being detected with just being in presence of secondhand smoke so I, i'm i'm sort of it's just i'm just confused so i'm just like what what do i do there's there's nothing to go by there's no uh it, the the threat of punishment doesn't doesn't um doesn't um uh, it's it it doesn't make me want to ju- not drive. It just makes me nervous that I'm going to get in trouble for for reasons that suck. <laughs> well, I, I just to speak to what you were getting into there, Jared. I, I think it's actually worse than it not being effective. I think that we're um, we've we've reached a point where um, the the drug driving regime because of the way that it's working, it's actually undermining the drink-driving regime. So it was reported in the Herald Sun recently that there's these Facebook groups, which I happen to, you know, frequent, um, where people basically uh, post the location of police operations. Um, now, the, the kind of legal justification for how they can do that is like, oh, we're helping people avoid traffic problems. Um, but what's actually happened is you've got over 200,000 people in a group regularly posting where um, where these operations are. And, and a lot of the reason why people do that is because of the perception of our uh, drug driving laws being unjust. So not only is it not changing the behaviour, it's um, creating a subversive environment for uh, like a broad range of road safety operations, some of which most people support. And, and I um, think, the, the, yeah. Oh, you go. Yeah. Go on. Oh, I was just going to say it's 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 interesting because obviously a lot of these these deterrence models focus on you know the effectiveness of shame and guilt um, and those sorts of emotions to to change behaviour. And it's it's odd to say this because often when we're talking about drug policy, we're all talking about destigmatisation and things like that. But I think that if if the regime was working effectively all of that shame and stigma would be associated with driving whilst impaired. And I have no problem mm-hmm. with, with that, with working in that way, that, that people should feel guilty if they are impaired and driving. Um, but it, it's not working in that narrow sense. Instead, people feel like they're being attacked just for using drugs. Um, and because they feel like they're being attacked for just using drugs, there is that, that defiance, exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, well, law enforcement's just after me, so I'm just going to rebel against that. Um, and mm. it's not very yeah, not very effective in what it's trying to do. Um, well, and I think the other thing that's not accounted for is that people, they, they want people to stop consuming drugs um, and driving while impaired or stop consuming drugs at all if they're going to be driving. But what actually happens for um, for some consumers is they just take different drugs. 
because mm. they don't test for all drugs. So people make rational choices to consume something that's not tested for. Now, they may or may not be impaired behind the wheel. Like, it's hard to know because there's less than 200 impairment tests actually done in Victoria each year. As, as part of uh, the discussions around ro- the roadside drug testing scheme, we've uh, uh, put together a, a um, petition, e-petition on the Legislative Council uh, website. Uh, it's um, number 117. If you want to look at the uh, par- Victorian Parliament website and head to the Legislative Council and go to the e-petitions, it's an inquiry into drug driving reform. Uh, and as part of the uh, inquiry into drug law reform, the 650-page uh, inquiry um, that was tabled uh, early last year, earlier last mm-hmm. year now, yeah, gosh, time flies. Yeah. Um, one of the recommendations of that was to um, inquire into our, our our current roadside drug testing scheme because um, uh, the politicians who went overseas uh, saw some of the different um, methods that were being used uh, overseas. <coughs> Um, but um, David Limbrick is the sponsor of that, uh, David Limbrick MP for the uh, Liberal Democrats, and uh, this was David in Parliament um, talking about that um, uh, that report we've just talked about on uh, deterrence theory. The October 2018 report from the National Drug Driving Working Group explains the philosophy underpinning Victoria's drug driving laws. It outlines that deterrence is the key feature that defines the strategy. It also highlights that our drug driving laws are very specifically a driving offence and not a drug offence. The aim is to emulate the success of the roadside breath testing regime, which has 97% community support. It also states that social pressure, cultural and social norms, stigma, peer and social sanctions may produce a stronger impact on a driver's offending behaviours than traditional legal sanctions. With so much opposition to the policy in the community, including from legal profession and academics, how can the policy gain the broad community support that the strategy documents state are critical for a deterrence framework to succeed? And I don't, I, I don't know if there was much um, answer from other parliamentarians after that. Ash, do you know if there was much uh, conversation after that, or was it more or less? Well, left so there? the minister, the minister Jala Pulford, um, you know, gave an answer in the chamber, uh, but it, you know, it, it, they call it question time, not answer time. So <laughs> she she didn't specifically um, answer that question, but she did challenge the idea that there was broad opposition to the policy. So that's maybe a difference of opinion that um, I expect everyone on this panel would have uh, with the roads minister. It might not be majority opposition, but if you consider how many people in the in the community consume cannabis either frequently or infrequently, or even for medical purposes, those people all know that they're at risk of losing their license, whether or not they're impaired behind the wheel, and a lot of their friends do as well. So I, I think that there has to be broad opposition to the, to the policy. 552 signatures on the uh, inquiry into drug driving reform legislative council e-petition so far, which um, isn't the highest number of uh, signatures so far on an e-petition. Still got a few months to go before we uh, finish taking signatures on it, but um, uh, it, it is higher than a lot of the other ones. It's probably in the upper upper middle um, now. So I, it does show that there are obviously people that care, and um, I've actually started hearing more and more horror stories from people now who have contacted me because of uh, that and also a piece in the um, Sydney Criminal Lawyers blog, which is another, um, another great uh, legal blog that is worth um, following along. Uh, and some of the stories out there are... 
um, I mean, look, it's relatively simple stuff, but some people rely on their car for work. And if they're without their car for three months, which is um, the, the simplest fine, the most basic fine that you can get uh, or punishment that you can get for um, being detected uh, be, driving with a detectable substance in you, which is different to driving impaired, that's a different charge. So the, the charge we're speaking about is um, whether or not they can detect something in you. But, yeah, it's, uh, people will lose their jobs. They, don't have a, they can't drive for three months. They won't be able to work in their job anymore and they have to go find something else to do. If they live far away, it can be quite difficult, especially if they're not near public transport, which um, people in regional or rural Victoria are not. Um, it's uh, it's it's. I hope it's a growing issue. It feels like it's a growing issue. People are starting to be more and more aware of the uh, effects of this poorly implemented policy. Mm. Um, can I share an anecdote? Sure. <laughs> so I did hear about one story about a, a person that was um, travelling between two festivals that were on during one weekend, and they um, they were detected with something in their system. Um, I think. By all accounts, they, they weren't impaired, um, but they were detected with something in their system, and it was in a remote location. And so they had to essentially wait in their car for a considerable amount of time. And by the time they could actually drive again and got their keys back, they were so dehydrated that um, they ended up being hospitalised for dehydration. So I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that I'd count that a success for road safety. Mm. All right. Well, um, that's roadside drug testing, I guess. Um, one of the two two other big issues, and they're sort of related, is of course uh, cannabis. Whether it's medical, whether it's recreational, uh, cannabis is one of the main ones that's detected in the roadside drug test. It, it seems to be the one that um, also lasts the longest in people's uh, body. That's detectable. Uh, the other two things are methamphetamine and MDMA um, that they say they're testing for, uh, but in in reality, that actually generally brings up any kind of amphetamine, including um, prescribed amphetamine. So make sure you've got your uh, prescriptions on you. Uh, I haven't actually heard of this, but I suspect that if people were taking something like a, a Ritalin or a Dexamphetamine that they'd been prescribed, that they would give a positive reading on the roadside drug test. And my guess is that... Yeah, I'm, I'm aware have, of this happening. Yeah, and I'm, they, I'm aware of this happening and, and they had to go to court and, and right. present their prescription, prescription. and the... the um, yeah, it, it was dismissed, but um, they did have to go through that whole process. Yep, so there you go. That's... And, um, Jack? And on that, all the uh, the benzos they don't test for, uh, which is interesting <laughs> because we know that that is that is the most likely to impair you. Um, but there's there's no test for benzodiazepines and and you know yeah. those sorts of prescription drugs that that you should not be driving. And you know it has it on the back. You know don't operate heavy machinery or drive. Um, there's no way of determining or detecting those sorts of drugs that that are probably of, of most effect. Yeah, well, there, there is a there is a way to detect them. They just don't do it. <laughs> well, yes, and and then I know a lot of people have been concerned uh, in the North Richmond area, whether rightly or wrongly, but concerned about people uh, injecting and driving. Uh, not so much with the uh, medically supervised injecting room. So much, I think, um, people are concerned. Uh, as well about people using method. There's there's a few mythological things around here because people are concerned about people injecting methadone, um, and from my understanding, methadone is not um, psychoactive. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? Um, I I think that 
depending on, so there's methadone, there's uh, buprenorphine and various different variants of it and different levels of side effects to, to each. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on this area, but I, I do think that the level of impairment may depend on that particular person. Well, I mean, I suppose that's you've touched on another big uh, issue here is that um, the way that um, different drugs impair you or, or alter your uh, mental state is very different to the one that we understand in the context of these these sorts of tests, roadside breath testing. Alcohol works differently to cannabis, works differently to LSD, works differently to GHB, works differently to heroin, works differently to methamphetamine, etc., etc., etc. These are not all the same thing. They're not all just drugs that we can lump into one basket and treat all the same. And I think maybe that's one of the, the big problems um, with our, our drug policy. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au with Ash Blackwell and Jared Bartle and um, been talking about the roadside drug testing, but maybe now um, pivot into it is coming into festival season um, and a lot of these issues um, come up around um, festival season, not just the roadside drug testing where uh, random tests get set up uh, outside places that seem a little targeted, um, but the pill testing debate, the ongoing pill testing debate uh, and just this week the uh, Greens in Victoria uh, with Tim Reid as the uh, drug spokesperson uh, uh, had a, uh, a discussion uh, about a bill that they're planning on presenting to Parliament soon. Uh, it's uh, about 30 pages long to amend the Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances Act to allow for uh, trial sites for pill testing. Um, have you both had a had a look at this bill? I, I've had a brief yep. read of it, yeah. Thoughts? What do you think of this idea from the Greens? Uh, taken in context of uh, Groove and the Moo, uh, Pill Testing Australia have done two trials there in the ACT, uh, and the Loop Australia have also been lobbying uh, at federal and state level uh, for pill testing. So we've got a, f- a few different uh, groups uh, around here and a few different models. How does the Greens one um, stack up? So, uh, at least from my perspective, I mean, it's quite a... Uh it's it's a, a compromised position in some ways because, as you uh, noted, it is talking about trials, talking about there being a, a mobile site that can attend festivals and a fixed site. Um, it involves a licensing regime, which I think might might raise a couple of eyebrows in terms of having to have uh, health authorities apply for a particular license. Um, and to apply with the mobile testing pilots actually seek approval before they can attend certain festivals. So I can imagine that that raising a couple of eyebrows. But I mean, overall, I think it's I think it's decent enough. Um, I, I see features of both a um, both features of the medicinal cannabis bill and the uh, safe injecting facility bill possibly copy pasted across in there, <laughs> which you notice from reading uh, so many pieces of legislation. Um, yeah. Uh, some of the wording, not a huge fan of. They, they use the term supplier um, when talking about the, the consumer, uh, which I thought was a bit odd. Um, and I have also heard some criticism over how it describes the actual pill testing process, um, where the consumer hands over the drugs to the testing, the, the staff member who's doing the testing. They take a sample and they hand it back. I have heard criticism that, well, that exchange either way Either way, is kind of a supply 
issue um, and whether or not the um, the bill adequately excludes liability um, is something I've also heard. But again, I've only had a, a glance reading of, of the bill, so I'm not sure if that, that's maybe a side issue. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's come up for... Um, uh, is it available for comment at the moment uh, through Parliament or are Greens just looking for comment uh, through there? The their... Greens are seeking feedback. Yep. Right. Um, and, and that's going to run until September, their, their um, sort of public feedback uh, uh, kind of process. Um, so so it's, it's available for public scrutiny. Um, and then I imagine, you know, if, if, that, if that feedback has some useful elements to it they'll redraft the bill and then um i'm not sure yet whether they're going to introduce it into the legislative assembly or the legislative council i think the legislative assembly because uh, it's mm. you know it's kind of got tim reed's name on it and, and he sits in the lower house um the comments on the bill i think that um good features that are in there whether or not they're drafted in the best way i i, I don't know yet but i like the fact that it has fixed site and mobile that's important um, not everybody can afford to attend uh, a festival, which, you know, sometimes they might cost several hundred dollars before you've even considered supplies and transportation. Um, so I think that's that's a very positive feature. There's some stuff in there about um, essentially facilitating what we refer to as an early warning system. So that involves the chief health officer. And I think um, there's some stuff in there with Victoria Police about information sharing. That's actually really important because um, that will happen occasionally where uh, a local area might have some kind of, uh, you know, unusual substance or adulterated substance turn up and, and create some health problems. And having the ability to share that across government networks more effectively is something that um, it really just should be done uh, and it's allowed for in the bill. I, I have yeah, some sharing the some, actual sample itself, it's like sharing the actual sample itself across. It allows that, which is great to to see because it means it can be compared to yeah. different labs, etc. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think that, that that's that's all good elements of the bill, and I, I'd probably have to read it a little bit more in depth to to you know to have a think about whether it's it's structured in the, the best way that it could. I have some concerns about the chief health officer and their ability to perform that role. There was um, testimony in the recycling inquiry that um, community members were very critical of the chief health officer around the fires in Western Melbourne and the subsequent leaks of toxic material into Stony Creek. And there were perceptions from the community that the chief health officer wasn't very effective in uh, information sharing and putting out warnings to the public. So... Um, I, I think, you know, if you glance at all of government, it makes sense that the chief health officer would have that role. Whether or not in practicality that's the best way to do it, I'm, I'm not sure. They, they have pretty broad discretion under the bill as well. Um, if you look at how it's drafted, there's a set of conditions that the chief health officer needs to consider before approving uh, a, a site, and it, it's pretty broad. So there'd, there'd be a lot of discretion on their, their behalf. So this has been uh, introduced ahead of the uh, of the festival season. Although by the sounds of it, uh, September is when they're going to be finishing up their their community consultation process. It probably won't be able to be introduced until maybe October, and then I think Parliament finishes sitting in what November? It's only about end of November. Yeah, so yep. there's not many sitting days in between now and then. So it's out, and then and then back in February. 
Is that when Parliament mm-hmm. returns? Yeah, so two months Yeah, off. that's right. So February yep. and plus then there'll be a backlog of stuff that I think the government will be more interested in focusing on. So we probably won't see any movement on this particular bill until next festival season. And this seems uh, to keep well, happening. Well, that, that, that depends. <laughs> we, we would need to check in with um, the Greens and Tim Reid's office to get an answer to that because it, it wouldn't be introduced during government business. It would be introduced in non-government business. And so essentially um, non-government members get debating slots uh, each each year they get a certain amount and um, it, it essentially depends whether Tim Reid if he's going to be introduced into the Assembly by Tim Reid, whether he has a debating slot available to introduce it and then it can be debated and as this has been going on for a number of years, there have been all sorts of different ideas put up of how to how to address the issue. The issue being uh, drug harm at music festivals and drug harms more broadly in the community from adulterated substances, largely uh, because of the abundance of novel psychoactive substances that are similar but perhaps more risky uh, than some of the substances that we know of. Um, and and could I just offer yep. a correction there, Nick? Yep. Um, just, I, I think it's important to highlight that it's not just adulterated substances, but it's essentially a mixed market that's dangerous at both ends. And by that, I mean you, you have the adulterated substances, but you also have more more MDMA in the form of ecstasy pills turning up in the market that are very high strength and purity, and they they pose risks in themselves from what are MDMA overdoses rather than uh, adulterated substances. So uh, some of the people out there, well, I'll I'll just make the Lynch Grinch point quickly uh, for anybody that's been following along any social media discussions at all on this. I think you'll know. Uh, what I'm talking about, um, but uh, essentially, it's that why us? Uh, why are us uh, people that advocate for harm reduction and drug law reform focusing on something like pill testing when we should be focusing on just legalising drugs? Damn it! Why are we not just focusing there, guys? I my response to that is if you have these kind of unflinching ideals and like endpoints you shouldn't be involved in politics in any way because <laughs> uh, you're going to constantly get disappointed. I think that, that legalisation is the ultimate goal, but you've got to be pragmatic <laughs> in terms of reducing harm because, you know, politics is a social environment. Lots of people have different values and different perspectives and you've got to accept a bit of compromise if you're, if you're wanting to achieve anything to reduce the harms associated with drugs. Ash, yeah, the Lynch Grinch. Well, I think that um, I, I think that Jared's point is is sound. Like, I, it, it's essentially an argument against incrementalism in policy, and sometimes incrementalism is all that you can get. You, you know, you get a series of small wins that help change perception, help change the public discussion, you know, help change the political discussion, and make it more possible to have conversations about do we want to legalize MDMA as a community? You know, obviously. Like where I expect that there's you know consensus in, amongst this group of people that that would be a, a better idea. It would be a better way of addressing the harms um, from MDMA use and, and removing elements of violent crime that exist in the supply chain. But um, I, we, I don't think we can leapfrog there. You know, this no. is, this is the this is the win that we think we can get right now. And so you know, making sure that we do actually get that win. Is that's that's the pathway to future legalization, if if that's some, something that's achievable. 
you've got to take the public where they're at. I think we probably, once you get outside your bubble and start having conversations about drugs, you, you realise the disconnect. I mean, people still think cannabis is a gateway drug, for example. Like, we've got to, we've got to drag people gradually across the line, and unfortunately that's going to be through a degree of incrementalism. Uh, yep. and, and I think one of the um, one of the, the the sort of issues, I guess, that's come up because yes, I agree, we need to be pragmatic. Um, I know that there are some out there, and, and that's in reply. So if anybody out there that's thinking, why don't we just focus on one thing? It's actually one of my most loathed uh, political arguments that people make because it's not an argument. Uh, it's people saying, "Hey, here's my priority. Why isn't everybody else focusing on my priority when we're literally yeah. what 24 million people in this country and we have the ability to focus on uh, multiple things at once?" Uh, and if somebody's trying to make the entire public narrative about their pet bug issue, I think it's really reflective on a, probably a, a little bit of a lack of um, some social capability on that person's behalf, perhaps. Uh, but that said, um, there, uh, dr- drug policy and, and with substances, we know that substances and, and, and politics go together. We look through history and we can see uh, with the arrival of um, of sort of uh, drinking cultures uh, for the for the middle and lower classes, it, it became a political act that people could go and sit around and talk together and have drinks together. Same with coffee houses, um, where in parts of the world, I think in Turkey or the Ottoman Empire, uh, a few hundred years ago, uh, they tried to ban coffee because of what they saw as political effects. So I think we're seeing again over the past hundred years, certainly with um, the, the psychedelic substances uh, for um, some of the Western, uh, more, perhaps more, more white uh, m- political movements and activism in the 60s and 70s, but th- then going back to cannabis and cocaine that were clearly uh, politically motivated racial uh, policies that were implemented. So we see time and time again that drug policy is a cultural thing, and this is something that um, uh, Tim Harvey from Rainbow Serpent Festival uh, pointed out in, in the modern context um, with uh, modern policies against the music festivals. Uh, this was Tim Harvey speaking uh, at that launch of the Greens uh, pill testing uh, bill. In many ways, the community I'm here representing today encompasses many of the ideals our society desperately needs to foster in these divisive times. Music festivals are a cultural and socio-economic bridge. They allow us to transcend our differences, and provide a platform for people from different backgrounds to connect with one another. In this era of radicalisation, the sense of community our event and others like it fosters provides a refreshing and important counter-narrative. Festival patrons represent all religions, races and professions. I have personally met lawyers, police officers, a brain surgeon, a nuclear physicist, and even a journalist or two who have found home within our extended community. Tim Harvey from Rainbow Serpent Festival, they're talking about um, the, the wide variety of people, but also the, the community spirit, because I think too often um, these discussions about music festivals and linking them with drugs ends up um, taking over the discussion from other stuff that's happening at music festivals, especially some of the so-called transformational type festivals, which Rainbow Serpent is one of. It's a global community. Um, there's a lot of um, progressive values and progressive politics going on there. Uh, Rainbow Serpent Festival, which is held on the Australia Day weekend, has a, a strong um, Aboriginal contingent. It's got an Aboriginal camp that's there. There's um, a welcoming ceremony. Uh, and there's also um, people from First Nations from around the world uh, that come and, and talk uh, at this event. So I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering what do you think of the, the cultural element here um, to these drug discussions? Is it is it really just about the drugs? I, 
I think there's a, there's an element of uh, dismissing festivals as being silly young people things. I think that that's definitely part of it. Um, and clearly the, many of the people that dominate these discussions are not the type of people that, that go to festivals and maybe understand the broader values that, that apply to that. It, it, it's somewhat similar, I think, in terms of like lockout laws in Sydney and how like the people that were most supportive of the lockout laws were not the people that were going to the, the live venues and saw the value in that. And so I think that disconnect is definitely definitely part of that, the debate. Ash? Well, I don't know. I mean, like, one of the reasons I'm here, you know, that I do in Psychedelia is because of my deep love of these communities. Like, without them, I wouldn't have connected with um, some of my closest friends, partners, um, present and past. And, um, like, I, I, I don't always consume any substances, legal or otherwise, at these festivals. Sometimes I just go and I'm sober and I have a dance and I have good conversations with good friends out in the Aussie bush and, uh, you know, have a dance. Like, if, you, if you're trying to argue that dancing in a communal way with a group of people is a bad thing, I think you're insane. Like, that, <laughs> you know, that's, that, that, that's the most ridiculous thing, you know, in the universe. Um, so for me, you know, I've, I've had a good connection with the circus community in my participation in, in festivals over the last almost 20 years. And um, for, for me, hanging out with strangers and, and sharing circus tricks is, is entirely a community element. Um, and the, the, the documentary screenings that happen, yoga sessions, you know, I think that people, people that aren't familiar with festivals, they, they really don't get what actually happens there. Like I might wake up at like eight or nine in the morning, go and do yoga, have a chai tea, look at some art. Like I'm not. I guess you know, I'm not there just like smashing drugs for the, for, the, for, for a week long. That's the, just not part of my experience. The easiest way I can I can think to to describe it for people that haven't been and perhaps are, have some other cultural activity that they centre their lives around is for us. It is very similar to what you might do when you go to a church. You go and you find this extended community of people that you don't necessarily know very well, but you sort of know by face. You get to know each other over the years of seeing the same people. Uh, you have similar values. You talk about similar things. You, the, you know, maybe some of the books that you read are similar books, that sort of thing. That's that's sort of what's going on. So it, it is, in its essence, um, a, a true community, um, but it's being, yeah, it's being targeted um in a, in a strong way it's not just about protecting the community um it's it, it really does seem to be about um busting the community sometimes or at least that's what it feels certainly felt like that with the uh, victoria police uh at rainbow serpent festival and i believe other festivals over the over the course of the year this year um where they have had a, a strong um punitive approach where they've been seeking um to arrest people who are who are using small amounts of drugs usually young people using small amounts of drugs and then running them through the the justice system which can i mean for, for young people that are studying certain um certain uh life paths it might mean that you can no longer do that i'm, I'm thinking especially of things like uh, teaching or uh, being a paramedic or things like that if you have a, a drug charge that could be really detrimental um 
to to your future. But look, we don't have long left uh, this afternoon on In Psychedelia uh, with myself, Nick, Ash Blackwell and Jared Bartle. Um, some uh, final topics. I, I was going to touch on the, the, uh, the vaping issue. Do you want to touch on the vaping issue, guys, quickly? Oh, God. I'm exasperated by the vaping issue. <laughs> it's, um, the, the government's just announced a new... The, the federal government, this is, has just announced a new $30 million plan to tackle uh, high smoking rates in certain communities. Um, and the, the, the response from uh, organisations like the Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association from, um, from the New Nicotine Alliance has been, well, we've got an easy way for you to do that. What you need to do is look at other Anglo-Western countries like New Zealand, the UK, Canada, that have all legalised vaping and seen their smoking rates decline rapidly and in large numbers. It's quite easy to reduce smoking rates. You just legalise vaping and make it more available. Hmm. I, um, I'm going to put my pessimist hat on. I, I should have actually put my pessimist hat on earlier when we were talking about the uh, green bill because I'm pretty sure that's not going to get, you know, once it's introduced, that's not going to be successful. Mm. And I think similarly, any um, any change when it comes to vaping in Australia, I'm fairly pessimistic about. I, um, I think that there was an avenue of opportunity to have those really nuanced discussions a couple of years back. Um, but I think that the, the current situation of treating vaping products like tobacco products and not allowing uh, nicotine um, unfortunately feels like it's the established status quo at this stage and no amount of reviewing is going gonna, is gonna to change that. Maybe I'm too cynical. Uh, I, I, I would say that your cynicism is justified, but I, I probably have a little bit more hope in, in that, um, like I know that the last during the last term of the federal government, they, they also had an inquiry into vaping and... Um, the, the final vote was 5-3, I think, and one of the members of the Liberal Party wrote a dissenting report that was it was very short, but potentially the shortest dissenting report in, in history. I, I can't remember the, the name of the member, but it essentially said, uh, life is short, it's shorter for smokers, we should legalise vaping. Um, <laughs> so I know that there is support within the coalition. I know that there's support within certain uh, crossbench parties um, at state and federal levels. And I know that there's support within the backbench of some of the major parties, both state and federal. And so I, I just think it's, um, it's very difficult to kind of persist with the lies about vaping for perpetuity. At some point, there has to be an admission that this is part of our strategy. Our national drug strategy includes harm reduction and to exclude tobacco from that when it's the most dangerous consumer product ever created is um well i don't i don't i don't think it's just stupid i think it's unethical so just uh, just quickly b- before we uh, finish up, um, and this is maybe a little bit of a curveball, but there has been some news out this week uh, of a, a bunch of young people over in the US, I think in Minnesota, uh, who 
ended up hospitalised with um, severe uh, breathing problems, a lung injury that is um, uh, being tied to vaporizer at this uh, vaporising at this stage. Mind you, I've only read um, tabloid news reports from the US so far from things like Fox News, so perhaps um, there's a little bit more to this story. But but we know that uh, although um, vaporising has now been around for... Uh, well, it's been sort of popular for the past 10 years. It's been around for about 20 years. Uh, we don't have longitudinal uh, studies showing us what the what the effects could be long term, um, but it, it does look like there there are some potential for for lower harms. But really, as you said, Ash, when you're when you're comparing it to um, basically the most dangerous consumer product ever made, um, maybe it's a little bit better than that. I um, I might be. I, I think it's purely speculation at this stage. We don't know the full extent of what happened in that that US case. But I, I was hearing that potentially they um, were vaping. THC, or that it was like a, a cannabis product. Yes, yeah, it's um, uh, contained both nicotine market. and THC. <laughs> so, uh, to me, when I when I looked at that, that seemed to me like that was maybe a quality control issue of a particular product um, that should have been picked up and definitely raises some red flags in terms of regulation, but um, not from my perspective a, a criticism of vaping overall from that case. And perhaps that's the that's the point um, that we might uh, finish up on this afternoon that um, with things like vaporising nobody who's uh, who, who uh, wants to see vaporisers legal doesn't also want to see them regulated we want to see proper uh, consumer controls on these things just like with any other product um, that people are using on the market um, but uh, I mean we can't go into it now but the TGA has refused to classify uh, various vaporisers when they've had them put forward to them or to reclassify nicotine to make it available. Um, Ash? Uh, well, I was just um, going to say that um, uh, I, I uh, yes, we want to see them regulated, but we don't want to see them over-regulated. What will happen, ironically, if you uh, put too stringent regulations in, it'll strangle the market and make it so that literally the only people available, uh, able to to meet the regulatory requirements will be big tobacco. And so if you go too hard... Um, you will ironically sort of hand the whole vaping industry to big tobacco, um, which currently isn't the case. But if if the you know if you require two million dollars worth of R and D to certify your product, there's only going to be a limited number of products that can pass that, and they will be the big companies, not the small businesses, that are able to do that. Ash Blackwell and Jared Bartle, thank you for joining us on In Psychedelia this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. I just suddenly went, this is the boy. You have been listening to another episode of Encyclopedia. Subscribe to our podcast at the Encyclopedia website, encyclopedia.org, or 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Uh, coming up next weekend, next Saturday, 31st of August, is International Overdose Awareness Day. A number of events going on uh, around uh, Melbourne. Uh, you can find out about them by typing in, in International Overdose Awareness Day uh, into Facebook. Uh, you'll find some events there, or head to the website, overdoseday.com, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the events are listed there. Look out for the cup colour purple on the day as well. Uh, that's the, the colour signifying it. If you want to find out anything more about things we've talked about on this show, please uh, do find our social media where we post lots of information there and also post uh, links to lots of other pages that you might be interested in following along. Enjoy your Sunday afternoon. Queering the Air is up next. See you later.
This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.